Welcome to the sermon podcast of Grace Presbyterian Church. For more information about our church, please visit our website, gracechurchlaunceston.com. All right, Mark chapter 11. I think uh, what's... I think... What we think is going to happen and the uh, reality is sometimes a little bit different. Uh, Reality can be different than what we expect. So 20 years ago, or nearly 20 years ago, I went to university and I studied environmental science. I was going to be a park ranger because I loved the outdoors and I still do love the outdoors. But now I am a Christian minister. It's a little bit different. Set our expectations and what is reality can be a little bit different. And it's something, something similar goes on when we think about Jesus. What we think about Jesus and who Jesus actually is can sometimes be different because there are so many opinions about Jesus out there in the world. Um, just think about your mates, maybe yourself, your work colleagues, people you know. Some people think Jesus is a, is a good guy. Um, other people think he's a religious teacher. Uh, one of many religious teachers in the world. Other people think of Jesus in political terms, like he's a political conservative or a political progressive person. Other people think Jesus is a prophet, one of many prophets. Uh, Other people say and believe that Jesus didn't exist. But the question is, are our expectations of Jesus and what we think about Jesus, does that match the reality? Uh, Well, that's why we come to the Gospel of Mark, because we see the reality here in the text itself. Do our expectations of Jesus and reality match up? So as we look at Mark chapter 11, we find that Jesus does some pretty interesting things, things we might not expect him to do. Um, He rides on a baby donkey. I've never seen anyone do that. Uh, Jesus curses a tree. I've never seen anyone do that. Jesus gets angry and it's almost like a tantrum in the temple. I've never seen anyone do that either. Um, So while there are heaps of ideas about who Jesus is, he really uh, breaks all the mould, doesn't he? he, The reality in Mark's Gospel, as we see Jesus on the pages of Scripture, is far greater and much more wonderful and something, someone we need to pay attention to today. So I've got three points today and the first point is Jesus is the unexpected king. Jesus is the unexpected king. So if you look at verse 1 from chapter 11, if you've got it there, we meet Jesus and he's on the road. He's approaching Jerusalem and he's there. And at this time of year, there's lots of other people around him. He's traveling with the crowds towards the, towards the big city to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Passover festival. Now, I've climbed a few mountains before and they're really putting some uphill kilometres here. Um, They'd get the 10,000 steps on the Fitbit. Uh, Jesus sends two of his disciples to a nearby village and he tells them, you're going to find a colt there, a donkey, a little donkey. Now, kids, maybe if you've got a hand out there, maybe if you do, you can draw a donkey. Can anyone draw a donkey? I reckon you can. They have long ears. They're not horses. Um, why does Jesus want a donkey? Why does Jesus want a donkey? Is he tired? He just wants a lift into town? I don't know. No, it's not. Well, the text says, verses 2 to 6, if you look at it, Jesus gives these rather detailed instructions. 
He gives some very detailed instructions about how these disciples are going to get the animal. And then the author of the book, Mark, records that it happens exactly to the, to the minutiae of what Jesus says would happen. What's going on here? Mark is going into these details about collecting a donkey because he's making the point that Jesus is in control. He is orchestrating these events to make a very important point. Jesus, up to this point, has kept his identity sort of fairly quiet, but now he's making a loud and open statement about who he is. He's deliberately arranging this event, this, this riding on a donkey, uh, to show everyone who he is. He's making a statement in riding on this little donkey that would lead to a sign being nailed above his head a week later, which says, which reads, this is the king of the Jews. That's the deal with the donkey. That's what Jesus is saying with the donkey. So we, we saw this in Zechariah, the other reading we had before. And it says there, verse 9 of chapter 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The prophet Zechariah says, he prophesies that this Israel's king is going to bring peace, not only just to Israel, but to the world, the world, the nations. And if you read Zechariah, you see this king is not only a king of Israel, he is Israel's king, but he's the king of the world. And this is what, what Jesus is arranging here. This is why he's arranging these things here in chapter 11 of Mark. To tell everyone, this is who I am. I am the king who's come to bring peace. He's declaring loud and clear, he's the long hoped for king. He's their Messiah, their Christ. And he's come to bring peace to the nations. That's what the donkey is all about. It's a symbolic act here. God has kept his word to Zechariah and to the people. Israel's king has arrived. But if you think about it, it's a pretty strange thing, isn't it? What do you think about donkeys? I don't, I don't associate donkeys and kings. I think of maybe Jesus, if he was being a little bit more predictable, might have ridden in on a chariot or with a big horse, leading some armies. Um, showing his power, showing his wealth, showing his authority. But with this king's arrival, with the king's arrival, the king's arrival, there's no, there's no foot soldiers, there's no tanks, there's no clash of steel weapons. And all you hear is Jesus rides past in this rather comical scene is, it's only this big, a, you hear the clip-clopping of hooves of this tiny animal, this colt, this donkey, and this man, Jesus. It's very, very strange in a lot of ways. What's a donkey all about? Why a donkey? Why not a horse? It's because Zechariah tells us that a donkey is all about humility. That's the picture that Jesus is showing us here. He's showing us the type of king he is. He's showing us the way he's come to save 
his people and bring peace to the nations. He's coming in humility. Jesus is a king who knows that his kingdom isn't established through brute force, but by humble sacrifice. Uh, Mark says just in the previous chapter that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He's He's a king who's come to humbly serve. Just a few days later, he lays down his life at the cross. And it's by this sacrifice, this humble sacrifice, that King Jesus brings sons and daughters, men and women, boys and girls into his kingdom. It's through conquering sin in death. It's through victory over unspeakable evil in his resurrection. He overcomes death itself. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse, to show us how he's going to establish peace. It's through sacrifice, not through powerful, a powerful display. Um, it's a paradox, isn't it? It's a, it's a strange and unexpected kingship, isn't it? He's both strong, he is strong, but gentle. He's just and merciful. In the words of Revelation, Jesus is the lion, the strong lion but he's also the lamb that has been slain. The powerful king comes in victory through humbling himself. And so the crowds, verse 9, they shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The crowds, they understand the symbolism of this this arrival of the king. They understand, and this word Hosanna, it's, um, it's a Jewish word for saying, God save us, so save us God. They're saying, blessed is this king, they're praising God here. And then verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts and he looked around at everything, but since he was already late, he went back to Bethany with the 12. So he's, it's, it's again quite strange, the king has arrived and yet there's no reception at the palace, there's no, um, there's no tour of government house or anything like that. He's just, there's no pomp and ceremony. Um, you might have seen the opening of the English Parliament on YouTube I did this week. It was ridiculous, isn't it? The amount of pomp and ceremony the English go through. But Jesus didn't get that, even though he's the great king. There's no armed guard ex- escorting him through the streets. There's no motorcade with the flashing lights. The king has arrived and yet... There's something wrong with the picture. He's entered Jerusalem, he's gone to the temple, he looks and then he leaves again. And so as a second point, uh, we find King Jesus is a surprising judge. Now here in Tassie, we, um, it's not unusual for people to find spirituality in d- different ways. Um, people see their connection to nature in spiritual terms sometimes. Um, other Tasmanians belong to different religious groups People say, if you believe in God, that's okay for you. Um, If you're a Muslim, if you're a Buddhist, you're a Christian, as long as you are happy. If you don't, you're happy to believe nothing, you're happy to believe anything you like, that's fine, as long as you don't harm anyone else in the process. That's the modern way of looking at religion here in Tassie. But in total contrast, almost to that, Jesus Jesus comes as a judge of religion, he comes and looks at these, the spirituality of Israel, the worship of Israel, and he judges them. So in verses 
uh, 12, to 4, 12 to 19, we find that Jesus doesn't just point, doesn't point the finger at the religions of the world, though. He inspects, in this instance, the religion of his own people. He goes to the temple and he inspects the heart of God's own people. And this is illustrated in this rather interesting incident with a fig tree. Now, you might be wondering what that's all about from verse 12. I'm going to read that out. So, verse 12, it says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, he's not just having a bad day here, um, a bit hangry. No, he's using this fig tree as an illustration to teach us something. You see, what, what are fruit trees? What are they meant to do? Produce fruit, aren't they? I've, I've planted fruit trees before that haven't produced fruit, and after a few years, um, I just get rid of them. They're, they're pretty useless, aren't they? You dig them out. And Jesus is using this, this fig tree here as an illustration, a metaphor for the spiritual condition of Israel, the heart of Israel. Israel is the fig tree in this, in this metaphor. Israel's the fig tree. And fig trees are meant to produce fruit. Jesus comes along, you see, expecting fruit. He's come along expecting fruit. Uh, he sifts through the leaves of the tree and under the branches, but he doesn't find anything like he's just about to do in the temple. Well, he's already done in verse 11. He sifts through the leaves of the temple and he doesn't find anything that's growing. He finds no spiritual life. He's gone to the temple to look for vitality and life. He was looking for true worshippers of God, faith in God. He was looking for genuine faith, for faith showing itself in love of others, of sacrificial service, of devotion to God and godliness. But what does Jesus find in the temple, the very epicenter of the religious life of Israel? What does he find in the temple? He finds that it's barren and empty and fruitless. And so, verse 14, Jesus curses the fig tree, doesn't he? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. This is a defining moment in the life of Israel. This is the end, if you like, of the temple. Jesus came along expecting fruit, but he's, found, he's find, found nothing. And he comes, verse 15, in judgment. So verse 15, it says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the branch, uh, benches of those selling doves. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What does Jesus see in the temple? He doesn't find communion with God, he finds commerce. That's what's going on in the temple. Uh, this, this place where Jesus is saying, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. The nations were meant to be coming into the temple this, this outer court where Jesus is was at the Gentile court. Israel were meant to invite people in to see God, to worship God. And yet, 
What are they doing? Instead of fulfilling their purpose, their calling, they are blocking them out. They're saying, I need to make a tidy buck here instead of following God. They're filling the, the temple, this sacred space, with buying and selling and profit. And that's why Jesus is so angry. He is very angry here. He's driving these people out. He's overturning tables. Verse 17, my house should be called a house of prayer from all nations. It's, that's from Isaiah 56. Um, the common hope of the Jews was that the Messiah, the king, would come and drive out the Romans. But the king comes and drives out the Jews. It's the opposite, isn't it? He's saying, this is my house, I'm God's king. This is my temple and you've kept out the people you're meant to invite in. And it gets worse. Uh, Jesus quotes from the prophet Jeremiah saying, you've made it a den of robbers. Uh, In Jeremiah's day, the leadership of Israel trusted in the temple. They trusted in the temple instead of in God. They, They said, we've got the temple, we will be fine. God doesn't mind about all this sin we're doing, this idolatry. We've got the temple. They thought they could get away with greed and idolatry without repentance. You know, in Jeremiah's day and in Jesus' day here. So the chief priests, the scribes, these are the religious leaders, the hierarchy. Verse 18, they plot to destroy Jesus. They, it just shows their heart, doesn't it? God says don't murder in his law. And that's exactly what the leaders of Israel, God's people, are plotting to do against their king. Everyone in the temple looks religious. It looks devout, but they were like a fig tree that looks green and leafy on the outside, but there's no fruit. There's no fruit. Uh, So, friends, Jesus is the king. He's the king not only of Israel back then, but he's the king of us. He's the king of the whole world. He is the king and we are accountable to him for how we live before him and how we worship him. You see, if we're not careful, and this this is a warning passage here for us today, we need to watch our hearts that we don't don't end up like this. The The problem in the temple can be our problem. You see, we can honour God with our lips, we can sing songs and say amen to prayers and read the Bible, Uh, but our hearts can be elsewhere. We can look very religious without a vital spiritual life within. We can have the appearance of Christianity, but not have a heart transformed by the gospel and by grace. We We can have a shell, a husk of religion, without faith in Christ. And like Israel, we can pay lip service to God, all while functionally living for ourselves and our own honour and our own purposes, our own greed, our own ends, rather than God's glory. Uh, Maybe we find ourselves singing heartily with our lips on Sunday, but then on Monday at work, in the office, um, instead of the fruit of the Spirit being shown in, in loving speech, we might speak with ruthless words towards our colleagues. Instead of putting others first in, um, in the way we organise our schedules, our, our, our finances, we can bend everything towards me, myself and I. And that's what we often do, isn't it? 
We can say the right things with other Christians around, but when we're, when, when we're not with other Christians, when we're in the office or at home or with our mates, we can act like Jesus really isn't the king of me. We can conveniently forget the, hump, the, the sacrifice of Jesus who has served us so much at the cross. Um, Jesus says these rather terrifying words in Revelation 3.1, which relate really to this passage. It says, um, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus says those words to a church. He says those words to a church in Sardis, who looked spiritually alive, but were on the inside, they were not alive. Israel were like that. They were a husk. They looked devout. They looked spiritually alive, but they were not. That's what the temple was like. And maybe we need to take an audit of our own hearts as well and watch our hearts because Jesus does expect fruit. Genuine worship, truly spiritually, spiritual lives, fruitful lives, that's what he's looking for. Like that fig tree, he's looking for fruit. And this comes from a heart changed by, by Jesus. This comes about because Jesus grows fruit in us. A heart changed by the gospel is how we produce fruit. And so if we, we look at ourselves and we're saying, oh, I don't really have much fruit going on in my life at the moment. Where do you need to go? You need to go to Jesus and ask him to work in you a life that honours him, a life of worship to him. So thankfully there is hope and that's the last point we got today. Um, and so as we look at these last verses, Jesus shows us there is, there is hope in God and he calls us to have faith in him. And this gets a little bit tricky, I think, anyway. But um, because what Jesus does in the temple is unexpected. It's a, it's a shock for Peter. If you look at verse, uh, verse 20, it says, verse 20, there it is. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. <coughs> it's like that pot plant plant you've forgotten around the side of your house. Um, withered, dead. Uh, it's really instantaneous, isn't it? It's the next day, the whole tree's dead. Jesus has cursed this tree. And Peter starts connecting some dots here. He starts thinking about what is actually going on here. Jesus has gone to the temple, he's talked about a fig tree, he's done this thing to a tree, now the tree's dead. He connects some dots. Jesus has cursed, not only a tree, he's cursed the temple, he's cursed it. The tree has come to an end, the temple has come to an end and it'll be nothing more than a pile of stone and we have to get this as a big deal this is a really big deal for jewish peter and the disciples this is a very big deal this is the temple what's going on here jesus how are we going to have our sins forgiven if there's no sacrifice those daily sacrifices need to happen jesus where is the hope for us jesus what does he say verse 22 verse 22 have faith in god you see? Have faith. Trust God. All this is going to happen, but trust God. God is powerful. He's in control. Believe, verse 23, that this mountain will be thrown into the sea. Believe that this mountain will be thrown into the sea. I went up uh, to Ben Lomond on Friday night and, uh, with Flora, and it's a very impressive mountain. If you've not been there, please check it out. Um, some huge uh, cliffs at Ben Lomond. Some very, very impressive dolerite rock faces. Jesus 
is talking about a mountain. But the question is, what is the mountain? What's he talking about? Um, he's talking about this mountain. What mountain? The Temple Mountain, isn't it? It's right there in front of him. It's where he's been as he walks back from Jerusalem. So when it gets thrown down, as it will be in AD 70 when the Romans flatten it, he's saying God will provide. This temple will be rubble. It'll be thrown down, but have faith in God. Trust God, O disciples. You see, this is Jesus' surprising answer. The temple mount will be cast down, but don't worry. Don't worry. The locus of worship isn't in that building anymore. Don't worry. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't need to go to, to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to meet with God. We don't need to do that. It might make for a nice holiday. I've never been there. Maybe I will one day. Jerusalem, great. It might make for an interesting holiday, but we don't meet God there any more than we meet him here. We don't need a cathedral with high ceilings to meet with God, thankfully. True worship doesn't happen at the temple, a temple or a shrine in Bali or in nature in Tasmania. Why? Because we meet at the temple. We meet God through Jesus, the temple. John chapter 2, 19 says, destroy this temple. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Then Jesus, and then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, Jesus is in Christ, is where we, we meet with God. He is the meeting place with God. He is the temple. So whenever uh, Christians gather, God is here with us. He's here right now by the Spirit. We meet God through Jesus. Book of Hebrews, Jesus is the priest. He's the priest who makes sacrifice for us. He's the once, of all, once for all sacrifice for our sins. He makes payment for our sins. And it's through Christ that we know the Father. He's the curtain of the temple, the temp through whom we come into the presence of God. And wonderfully, unlike the Jerusalem temple, people from all nations are joined into God's people to worship the King. And so, by way of application, if we want to live fruitful lives, if we don't want to be like a dead old fig tree, if we want to live a fruitful life of worship, then it's only in and through this, this person, Jesus, this King, that real fruit is produced. We don't want to be like that fig tree. It's in and through Jesus we can be truly fruitful worshippers because, because in him he's transforming us more and more to be like himself. He, can, he produces in us the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He changes what we desire. He helps us to say no to this sin and yes to righteousness. He renews our minds, the book of Romans, uh, through his word. We think about what honours God and we start to think God's thoughts after him. We, we think Christianly. Uh, we begin to act in selfless ways where before we might have been selfish. We begin to see others in need and we begin to start to, to put into practice ways to meet those needs. We grow in our joy in the Lord and even we grow in patience with the kids. Uh, and unlike most homeowners, 
this is a renovation project that God will actually finish and complete one day. So verse 24 and 25 really describe fruit, if you think about it. Verse 24 and 25 describe some of the fruit that Jesus is producing in us. The fruit of prayer and the fruit of forgiveness. So verse 24 says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and will be yours. It's a big, big thing, isn't it? A big claim. Um, To pray is to trust that God has the power to work what is best in our lives for his glory doesn't mean a happy existence all the time or an easy existence all the time, but it is God working in in us for his glory. So we can pray about uh, difficult things going on at work. We can pray about uh, people being sick and we can ask for healing. We can pray big kingdom-minded prayers uh, for our church and for this region and for the world. And we can believe that God can answer those prayers. And he can do far more than we ask or imagine. So verse 25, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. It's another fruit, isn't it? Forgiveness. Through Christ, we can show this fruit, even to the family member who's just rates against you, the person who has hurt you deeply, we can as Christians in Christ forgive other people who have hurt us. It's through faith in God that we can be forgiving people. We have been forgiven so much. Jesus has come to humbly sacrifice himself for us. He is the king who has laid down his life to serve us. And so in turn we in his strength, can forgive, even when it hurts. Have faith in God. That's what Jesus says to us. Have faith. Have faith in God. So, as we wrap up, when it comes to Jesus, a lot of people have different ideas about Jesus. Often our our ideas about Jesus don't match reality. That's why we need to read the word constantly, continually. The people you know might not think much about Jesus, but make no mistake, he's the king, the king who has loved us, humbling self, humbled himself to death for us, a king who serves, and he calls everyone to find peace with God through him. He's a surprising king, an unexpected king, but the reality is far better than we imagine. <laughs>